You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hughes Auditorium. Today, uh, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker, Dr. Kevin Brown, a man of industry and a man of poetry. <laughs> he has traveled far and wide in a land of timeless beauty, over the hills and valleys, gaining knowledge and investing in people. There is a man in the yellow hat from Curious George, full of grace and providing love. Dr. Brown is Asbury's man in the yellow hat. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, Sometimes the efforts of those in administration uh, go unnoticed, and they don't get to see the fruits of their efforts. And um, this university has been really kind and special to me, and uh, I want them to know that uh, what they're doing really does matter. And um, I'd like you all to know that here at Asbury, our administration follows Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, um, happy Friday. I am so excited to be here. I am so excited that our guests are here, and I want to welcome you. You are always, always welcome here at Asbury University. I also want to just take a very brief moment to say to our students, I am so happy about the Student Center, and you have all been incredibly patient. I wouldn't expect otherwise, uh, but you've been so patient, and thank you. Thank you for how you've adapted and adjusted over this last year, and especially when uh, timelines uh, turned into longer timelines into longer timelines. You've been amazing. So thank you all. I'm thrilled for this space, and it's for you, and I hope it continues to facilitate all the things in the community that we do so well here at Asbury University. Um, the scripture that I'm looking at today is really a blend. We're in Romans 12 through 14 with our series, Love and Action. And so in Romans 12, the verse 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then if we jump to Romans 14, 14, 7 and 8, and specifically in verse 8, we are the Lord's. And anytime, not anytime, most of the time, when, when a chapel speaker speaks, they have some aim in mind, like some kind of background goal. And that could be to explain a concept or to exegete a particular passage. It might be to uh, inspire some action to, to come to the altar and make a commitment or to serve in a community. It could be humorous. It could be serious, hopeful, cautionary. But my, my aim, my goal in today's chapel is this— I want to provoke a discussion. I want to provoke a conversation. And if students are discussing, considering, evaluating, thinking through today's chapel, I will have been successful. So I want to provoke a conversation. So as mentioned, the title of my talk is The Difficulty with Being True to Yourself. There's perhaps no guidance that's more common today than this charge we often hear to be true to ourselves. And the modern proverb is conveyed in a variety of ways, and the examples are legion. 
encouragements to live your truth or do you or be your authentic self or to forge your own way. These are all variations of a theme that reflect an inward turn in our pursuit to discover meaning, purpose, and transcendence. And actually, the the philosopher Charles Taylor talks about this kind of cultural shift from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. And what he means by that is being authentic isn't looking up or looking out. It's looking in. So while the aphorism, be true to yourself, or its corollary, be authentic, is frequently used and advertised, I just want to humbly suggest to you that it's problematic. And we're going to discuss that. Now, I have a few super important caveats uh, to a talk like this, especially when I have 20 minutes. First and foremost, I think individuality is important. I've shared this in other chapels before. I'm not trying to minimize the value of individuality, personality, a durable sense of self-worth. I think these things are important. Individuality is important. I think our feelings are really important. I'm 45 years old. I can still remember when I was young people making fun of freckles on my face. I can remember well saying something stupid or embarrassing. I can remember girls, plural, breaking up with me. I can also remember when someone encouraged me, when someone made me feel welcome. So we remember these things because our feelings matter. Feelings are important. And I think taking care of ourself is important. We need to be self-aware. We need to practice self-regulating behaviors. We need time to recharge. We have to take care of ourselves. And finally, my last caveat, our autonomous self and our relational self are often presented in zero-sum terms. And what I mean by that is we think to have more of one means that we have less of the other. And I don't think that's true. I actually think the opposite is true. So in my comments, I'm not, I'm not trying to knock individuality, our feelings, healthy self-regarding behaviors, or those unique features that make us us. What I do hope to argue is that it's quite difficult, if not harmful, to follow the advice, be true to yourself, and that there are better and more faithful and more aspirational aphorisms for us to live into as followers of Christ. So I'm going to start by providing five reasons why I think it is difficult to be true to yourself or to follow that advice. So let me jump right in. First and foremost, which self should we be true to? The encouragement to be authentic often suggests that we have this coherent interior life. However, our internal states we know are neither monolithic nor fixed. I love this quote by John Wesley. He was describing Jonah in the Old Testament. He called him a motley mix of all sorts of contrarieties. And I think something similar can be said of us. The author Mark Buchanan, he had a book, uh, Your God is Too Safe. It's a really great book. And in it, he tells a story where he was counseling a young couple. They were about to get married, and they had written their own vows. And the vows were really good, but at the very end, it said, no matter what, I promise to be true to myself. And Buchanan said, you know, I think your vows are great. I would take out that last sentence. And they said, no, 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 we're leaving that in. He said, no, I think you should take it out. 
They said, no, we're leaving it in. And then he said this, there's part of me, I'm glad to say, that's joy-filled, generous, trusting, trustworthy, but there's another part of me, maybe the larger part, that's slothful, lustful, greedy, miserly, apathetic. I could go on. Which part should I be true to? There are a mix of attributes that you and I have that, that characterize and constitute our identity and self-understanding. Some are good. Some are ugly. Some are defined. Some are in process. Some are admirable. Some are repugnant. Some are mature. Some are maturing. To be true, therefore, becomes a selective exercise when we appraise a broad range of human contrarieties associated with our own process of maturation. Closely related to this, some philosophers even question whether authenticity is even possible given just the dynamic nature of humans. We're always changing. We're always becoming something. So the encouragement to stay true begs the question, true to what? Which dimension of myself demands my fidelity? That's number one. Okay, number two. It's not clear what it actually means to be authentic. There are some different ways of thinking about this. Even if our self were stable and static, we have to answer the question, what does it mean to be authentic? And, and here's, here's the big question. Does being authentic mean a commitment to values? Like, in other words, uh, the aspiring towards virtue, towards attributes that are good and right and true, or is it an expression of preference, prioritizing personal tastes, desires, urges, and feelings. And let me give an example that, that illustrates this well. Um, in Plato's Republic, uh, some of you, uh, Thrasymachus and Glaucon, these kind of like Lord of the Ring-ish kind of names, Glaucon tells this story, and they're talking about justice, but he tells the story of a farmer, and this farmer finds a ring and if the farmer had a ring and they could turn the ring, or the wearer, whoever has the ring, it makes them invisible, what would that person do? What would you do if you had a ring and when you turn the ring, it could make you invisible? And Glaucon says, most people would probably steal from one another. They would probably sexually violate others. They would probably enact revenge on their enemies. Why? Because there's no consequence. There's no retaliation. It doesn't mar their image or their reputation. If they were invisible, this is what they would do. Oscar Wilde has a quote, you give a man a mask, he'll show you his true face. That's what Glaucon was saying. He's saying the invisibility affords no retaliation or public judgment, and it gives license to express your true intentions. So here's the point. If a magical ring, if a magical ring afforded anonymity and the ring bearer went on to satisfy decadent desires or violent impulses because there was no consequence, there was no retaliation, are they being authentic? Now, if authenticity relates to virtues and the expression of those virtues, the answer is no. If authenticity relates to expressing our inner desires, the answer is yes. And this raises another question that has a significant philosophical history. Is the essence of our identity bound up in our capacity for rational reflection and the consideration of values, or is it reflected in our appetites, 
urges, and inner desires. So because judgments about authenticity are contested, the abstract advice to be true to yourself does little to guide us in concrete situations. Larger questions must first be answered before authenticity becomes tenable or even in some cases appropriate. Okay, that's number two. Number three, authenticity can be a euphemism for selfishness or harmfulness. So in the absence of of answering these larger questions about what authenticity even means, the murky nature of the expression is at risk of being wielded as a kind of euphemism that might justify any manner of selfish or harmful behavior. Some examples, adultery, marital affairs, decommitting from relational obligations, indulging unhealthy appetites, shirking the wisdom of others, or being brash and offensive. All of these things find justification under the broad shadow of being true to ourselves, authentic expression, self-discovery, or me-first nonconformity. And by the way, these aren't theoretical examples. I, I, I know some of these very instances, and I hear this very thing from people in my own life. So in this sense, being true to ourself risks the potential of justifying these unsavory impulses. In other words, the self is the reference point and is not in some kind of morally grounded relationship or responsibility or commitment. This could be described as another form of emotivism. This was a term that comes from Alastair McIntyre, probably one of the most important 20th century philosophers. And he describes this as the doctrine that all evaluative judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, of attitude or feeling. In other words, if there's no moral reality outside the self, says McIntyre, then all that's left is the self. I become the standard then for everything. This is why the sociologist Eva Allows observes that feelings have often become the moral basis for our action. Uh, Do you all remember in 2013 there was a fascinating interview that Lance Armstrong, who had just been caught, uh, he was guilty of doping uh, for cycling, he had an interview with Oprah. But he said, you know, Oprah, during that time that I was doping, it just didn't feel wrong. Now, luckily, she didn't let him off the hook, but he was appealing to this very idea. There's an essay. uh, I think everyone should read it. It's probably one of the most important uh, essays in political philosophy over the last century. It's by Isaiah Berlin, uh, Two Concepts of Liberty. But in the, at the end of the essay, he, he quotes uh, uh, Schumpeter, uh, the famed economist. It's a famous quote, and it goes like this. To realize the relative validity of one's convictions and yet to stand for them unflinchingly is what separates a civilized man from a barbarian. To realize the relative validity of your convictions, and yet to stand for them unflinchingly is what separates a civilized man from a barbarian. You know, that sounds nice in some regard, and and he was giving the comment as it related to democracy. Uh, But I think there's a deeper point here. If, If you and I if we truly believe that our deepest beliefs 
and judgments and values are only relatively valid, if we only believe that those are relatively valid, and yet we're willing to hold those unflinchingly, that does not make you civilized. That makes you a fool. Most of us would not want a political tyrant, a habitual liar, a sexual deviant, or a callous corporate CEO to be true to themselves or to stand for those values unflinchingly. Why? Because it's harmful. When we become our own standard for morality and when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, we know biblically this leads to chaos. It's called foolishness in Proverbs. And we know it's harmful. And it's not just harmful to other people. It's harmful to us. A close friend of mine is a pastor in Pennsylvania at a large church. And he recently said, I've just seen too many people who have followed their heart all the way to their deepest regret. Fourth, self-discovery is still culturally contingent. Uh, in his book, Habits of the Heart, uh, Robert Bella, this was several years ago, he coins the term expressive individualism, which is the belief that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if our individuality is to be realized. And here, self-understanding is, and, and our self-identity is an inward-to-outward movement. In other words, Bella says, we look inside of ourselves to express ourselves to an outside world. However, I would make the point, and many others have made it, our self-understanding is still culturally contingent. In other words, the individuality that you and I choose to express is still heavily moderated by cultural norms that are specific to our environment. I'll put it this way. While we may think we're looking inside to understand ourselves, we're often concerned with what outsiders think. Tim Keller has given this example. He said, if an Anglo-Saxon warrior in the Dark Ages, and an Anglo-Saxon warrior would prize conquest and violence and some of these other Homeric virtues. He said, if, it, if an Anglo-Saxon warrior in the Dark Ages examined his heart and saw aggression, and when people got in his way, he wanted to smash and kill them, he might say, this is me. This is who I am. He said, however, today, if the median American explored their heart and saw aggression and wanted to kill and smash people that got in their way, they would probably say, that's not me, <laughs> and something's really wrong with me, and I need help. The point is, self-understanding is still tied to what's culturally understood as appropriate, normative, and favorable. Keller says this, you have a morally charged, value-laden grid that is being laid on your heart that you are using to choose what you identify with and what you don't. Someone is going to tell you how to sift what is on the inside. This point was made really well in a recent book by Barna's president, David Kinneman, about digital Babylon. He said, another distinctive is that being different and unique, reflected in the oft-repeated mantra, you do you, is among the highest priorities in the quest for identity. Our society deifies the individual's search for self-expression. Ironically, however, most of us end up looking like the crowd we want to be a part of. The apparent value placed on self-expression is actually driven by someone else's preferences. Even when we think we're marching to our own beat, 
We've got an unseen drummer in our heads, keeping time and making claims on our identity. In other words, let me just summarize. Who we are at a given time is this complex weave of countless experiences and inputs, and it makes it difficult to distinguish what is uniquely our, what is uniquely Kevin Brown. The common perception that we're self-defined individuals or this kind of American rugged individualism overlooks the fact that we are influenced by and subject to a variety of forces and pressures that govern, guide, and mold the preferences and the actions that we claim as our own. Researchers call this preference formation, by the way. Okay, last one, fifth. What if self is the problem and not the solution? There's a really fascinating book that came out last year by Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, It's called Strange Rights. And she's making the point that even though institutional religion has gone down and down and down through the decades, we've seen a rise in what she calls intuitional religion. In other words, people may be leaving church and organized religious institutions, but we're not a country of strident atheists, or cynical agnostics. Rather, we're finding other new forms of religious expression, and she puts it this way. Among the most common sayings I heard among the people I interviewed was, I make my own religion. In other words, this intuitional religion, uh, the source is, of meaning is found within us. We ourselves are responsible for meaning. Transcendence isn't discovered, practiced, or participated in. Rather, it's, it's really constructed. So as Burton suggests, we tend to view ourselves as possessing the solution to life's big problems, life's big questions. But what if our self is the problem? And I think this is one of the many differences of the Christian faith and the intuitional faiths that Burton describes in her book. Specifically, Orthodox Christian doctrine characterizes the self as diseased with sinful inclinations and disordered desires. There are things that are pulling our affections, you and I, away from a love of God and a love of neighbor that is proper. This is why Augustine said virtue is ordered love, loving the right things. Immanuel Kant talks about the crooked timber view of humanity that we have. Remember in Jeremiah 17, this is said, the heart is devious above all else. It's perverse. Who can understand it? In sum, we are not good. That's not our starting place. Outside of a Savior, I'm a mess. Remember that Mark Twain quote? Be yourself, he said, is the worst advice one person could give to someone else. And I think Martin Luther's characterization of sin is particularly helpful here. We talk about sin as missing the mark or the willful transgression of a known law of God. Uh, But if we go back to Luther and probably even before him, uh, this idea of sin is incurvatus in se. It's the heart curved in on itself. In other words, classical Christianity understood that the self is the problem. The self is not the solution. This is why you and I need a Savior. Incredible quote from Confessions, one of the most important books, uh, I, I think, in the Christian canon. My sin was this, he said, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in God, but in myself and in his other creatures. And the search 
led me instead to pain and confusion and error. If the Christian vision is a more accurate picture of our human anthropology, then unqualified fidelity to ourself will fail to deliver us and to liberate us into the human flourishing that's often promised in the aphorism to be true to ourself. Sorry. Okay, that's a lot. Again, I want to provoke a conversation. And I do want to end with, I think, a better way, a more fruitful, a more humanizing, a more faithful way of thinking about how we live as Christ followers. And that, that is the idea of unselfing. The concept of expressive individual, individualism that I mentioned before has very much kind of burrowed its way into our imaginative landscape. I think that colors the way we see the world. And so being able to kind of locate ourselves is important for that reason. And as I've sought to suggest, authenticity to ourself is difficult advice to follow because it's based upon some of these contested assumptions. And chief among these is the idea that you and I are responsible to define our own life. But here's the thing. What if another story is true? And what if we're created on purpose and therefore we have a purpose? And what if we don't choose our path to flourishing so much as we experience it when we participate in our intended design? I love this verse. I love the NRSV of Ephesians 2.10. For we are, you and I, we are what he has made us. We're created. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And what if we're not the author of our own story so much as we're the character embedded in a story? And what if identity, our sense of self, our origin of self-worth, our understanding of what to do and what to practice in a given situation, what if it is a function of the persons and places in our lives, this nexus of dependencies, responsibilities, obligations, and practices associated with the socially embedded self? What, is it, what if it's a function of being made in the image of God? And if this is a more accurate account of our humanity, then being true to ourself will simply stifle the flourishing that God has designed for us. It's participation in the life of God that we're made for. And in this tradition, this means a commitment to God, our creator, and it means a commitment to others, our neighbors. In this story, we unself to realize our true self. I'm almost done. This is the great irony, Asbury, of the Christian faith. When we empty ourselves, we become whole. When we lose our life for the sake of Christ, we are told we actually find our life then. In binding love, we realize freedom. I love, I love the beginning of that Wendell Berry poem. What wonder have you done to me, to his wife? In binding love, you set me free. In being bound in that love, there I find freedom. And in my commitments, my responsibilities, obligations, that's where I discover meaning, significance, value, and identity. Because others are, and because Christ is, I am. And you are.
New Testament scholar Richard Baucom says, real freedom, real freedom is liberation from enslavement to self-interest and the freedom to give oneself for others. Tennyson has a little quote, thou seemest human and divine, Jesus, the highest, holiest manhood thou. Our wills are ours. We know not how. Our wills are ours to make them thine. Real freedom is the freedom to give ourselves to others. Real free will is the freedom to give that will to our creator. In the Christian story, we're not encouraged to be true to ourselves. We're directed to love God and others. And if this is our purpose and design, then staying true to anything else will compromise and complicate our flourishing. Let me end with this quote. The greatest burden, this is Hannah Woodall Smith, the greatest burden we have to carry in life is self. The most difficult thing we have to manage is self. Our own daily living, our frames and feelings, our special weaknesses and temptations, and our peculiar temperaments, our inward affairs of every kind, these are the things that perplex and worry us more than anything else. And that brings us oftenest into bondage and darkness. And laying off your burdens, therefore, the first one you must get rid of is yourself. Amen. As I said at the beginning, I want to provoke a conversation. And as you're discussing and processing and thinking about that uh, within this community, uh, I also want to encourage uh, what we would call here an epistemic framework <laughs> for thinking about that, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, scripture, reason, experience, tradition. As you think about these things, how does it accord with Scripture? Uh, how does it accord with reason, uh, the, the currency of exchange to evaluate the merits of an idea, reasoned argumentation, evidence? How does it accord with our experience of the Holy Spirit and our encounter with Jesus Christ? How does it accord with tradition and orthodoxy, what Tom Oden called the deeper consensus that's been passed down to us through time? Thank you. Thanks for letting me share. God bless you all. Uh, I'm excited about our day together. And let me close in a short prayer. Thank you, Father, for this place. We pray that you would be present here. And Lord, I just pray that whatever we do, and Lord, in our individuality, in our feelings that we know are important, in the importance of our self-care, in the importance of our unique features that make us us, Lord, may we use our freedom to give those things to you and to give those things to others and to bind ourselves in these commitments so that we can truly live, we can truly edify our communities, and we can truly glorify you. And may this all be done through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the power of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.